Welcome to Jade Explains Death, a place where the more morbid the curiosity, the better. We'll be confronting the one thing humans fear most, death. Each episode will be dedicated to a manner of death, and I will paint a vivid picture of how each would feel, as well as share some of the darkest yet most interesting real-life stories. Get ready, because we're about to embark on an adventure now. Welcome back to another Death Exploration Loves. We are going to explore another really intense subject matter. Time to discuss suicide. And of course, my content may be upsetting to some and for mature audiences. Listener discretion advised. We are going to begin our journey by visiting a few places that are marred with controversy. These are places that are scenic and mesmerizing. Some are even tourist attractions. But when we hear their name, we often think of one thing, and that is the many souls who chose these places as their final site, smell, and resting place. At the base of Mount Fuji is a dense, flourishing forest. It's filled with seas of many different grains and trees that almost seem human themselves. Some say that the woods offer a solace of peace and desolation, something to never take for granted. Tragically, that desolation has called on a darker purpose. This is the sadly infamous Okagahara Forest, otherwise known as the Sea of Trees, or like the English like to call it, the Suicide Forest. It's about a two-hour drive from Tokyo in Japan. Because of its dark associations, you will find a sign at the entrance that loosely translates to, quietly think once more about your parents, siblings, or children. Please don't suffer alone and first reach out. It's unclear when the woods became a destination for death tourism. In 1961, a popular novel was penned where the protagonist took to the Sea of Trees to die. Many people believe that's where the trouble began, but actually it predates 1961. It goes back to at least the 50s, and likely long before. But shortly after the novel was written, groups of volunteers began searching the forest to bring closure to families. There were many, and still are many, missing people of Japan who were feared to have been swallowed up by the romanticism of that place. But without a body, they would never know for sure. With each new year, the searches rendered a higher body count. This forest's appeal is trending up. Something about it is drawing in more and more people each year. And that is true to this day. Folklore suggests that the spirits of the trees are drawing people in. They say that going near these woods will have you bewitched with urges that you've never known before, that they prey on your vulnerability. They bring out the darkness that already lives inside of your mind. They show you a reflection of yourself that will drive you to desires that are unbecoming. I personally believe there are other explanations. Many people who enter this forest are likely already feeling very isolated and alone. There might be some comfort in knowing many have preceded them in death. Perhaps it offers solidarity to be surrounded by the souls who walk the grounds. But also, the Okakahara Forest is incredibly dense, and there are only a few footpaths. It's a place where you can easily get lost. Several remains have been found over the years restrained to trees. I think it's an insurance policy for people who fear that they might change their minds. Not every person found there was taken by self-inflicted wounds, some die simply to exposure or dehydration. This makes the entire thing so much heavier. Does that mean that they changed their minds but got lost and couldn't find their way out? Or was it all purposeful? They might not have been able to bring themselves to hang or shoot themselves. Instead, their deaths were drawn out for days. Unfortunately, because these woods are so vast, there are likely countless remains who will never be discovered. They'll simply just blend into the soil over the centuries. 
bones will remain until animals carry them off. I believe that media and popular culture has also contributed to the growing number of suicides. It offers a romanticism and a poetic component. Hearing the stories of the forest is certainly not going to convince a person to become suicidal, but if a person already is, they might find something in that forest that beckons to them. The many who starved or died to the cold likely wished to change their minds. Unfortunately, they took precautions to make that impossible simply by just going into the woods. This forest has short summers, but they can be really hot and sticky. The winters are long and wet. These two extremes can definitely kill in themselves. The entire forest spans nearly 14 square miles or 22 square kilometers. There are little landmarks. The footpaths only cover a small percentage of the forest. Additionally, at nightfall, the trees shade the interior from moonlight. It has a darkness that can literally swallow you up. This kind of darkness is unlike any darkness that we are used to. There's minimal ambient light, if any. This kind of pitch black makes everything unrecognizable. People who have explored this terrain for years have claimed it's filled with secret chasms of emptiness. The hundreds of thousands of trees are packed so tightly that wind does not touch them. It's dead still and eerily silent. Even just a heavy sigh can sound like an angry, rumbling thunder. The grounds are rocky and uneven. In that pitch blackness, you can easily catastrophically injure yourself and become stuck. The trees have wild roots that web along the top of the soil. They create networks of thick, tripping hazards. Hundreds of caves with bone-tight crevices, some that are unmapped, are sprinkled all along the grounds. At night, this forest is filled with death traps. This could be part of the draw. Word on the street is that Japan has a very dark history with leading people into angry landscapes where they're left to die. This could have acted as the very first seed planted. This could have given people the idea. Of course, we don't know for certain if this was a real practice or just folklore, but it could have triggered these consequences nonetheless. This practice was known as ubisute. If it was real, it was only employed in times of great desperation and famine. When food and water was scarce, elderly members of the family were allegedly led to dark, twisting forests or hostile mountains. They were bamboozled into walking into their own deaths. They were left stranded to die alone to the elements or starvation. The Okokohara forest would have been a perfect setting for this to unfold. For the unfortunate souls who accidentally or purposely died to exposure, it was certainly no picnic. It's believed that anybody who brings a tent into the Okagahara is experiencing doubt or second thoughts, which makes it all the more crushing when volunteers find a corpse next to a tent. But in the winter, without a tent, freezing to death is a likely end. How would this feel? Initially, your extremities will begin to burn, which is a little ironic. I'm from the Midwest, so I'm very familiar with this sensation. I feel it at least six times a winter. Of course, I always get myself out of the cold before it progresses. It feels painful to the touch. It tingles, but it's a stinging tingle, like thousands of needles are pricking you all over. It's similar to getting a tattoo, but all over your body. Your system kicks off a chain of events designed to keep you alive as long as possible, but it's painful. Blood flow constricts from your limbs and it's rerouted to your internal organs. Your heart and breathing will grow rapid initially. And this is the point that you'll begin to violently shiver. This act actually helps to generate heat. 
Every ounce of color will drain from your skin. That stinging tingling will go up a few notches in misery. It will begin to feel like a clothing iron on low is being pressed into your body. Low heat or not, it still burns like a son of a bitch. Exposed flesh, fingers, and toes are the first to feel this nastiness. Next, your muscles will seize up all over. Movement becomes very labored. Your flesh will grow glossy like a magazine page. The searing pain will spread into your arms and legs. Frostbite survivors almost always explain their experience in a similar fashion to burn victims. Once your heart rate slows down, you're in the danger zone. You'll have an overwhelming need to pee. Due to temporary increase of blood flow to your kidneys, they will switch into turbo mode. Around this time, hallucinations often begin. You lose complete touch with reality. Brain fog will smog out any rational thought. Depending on the temperature, this can take anywhere from minutes to hours. Can you imagine feeling like you're slowly burning alive for hours? Then just near the end, you'll feel a bizarre sensation to shed off your layers. Of course, that brain fog will make it difficult to remember why you shouldn't do that. Your blood vessels are all dilating in a short span of time. This is kind of a last-ditch effort to save you, but this generates a ton of heat. Sometimes people even have a strong urge to burrow, but we honestly don't really know why that occurs. But we do know, once you start to feel that warmth, it's a short hop, skip, and a jump to the end. Your organs are beginning to shut down at this point. Death can arrive within seconds to minutes of that happening. The most common method of suicide inside the Okagahara is hanging. This is the second most common method worldwide. I have to wonder why that is. And I really think it has to do with two things. The first being that, depending on how it's executed, it removes the choice to back out or stop. And the second being common misconception about this method being a relatively quick and painless death. Most data out there about hangings is referring to executions by the gallows. And trust me, these hangings were often botched and ended with the convicted and the witnesses suffering greatly. There's a perfect science to the length of the rope and how far the drop from the platform is. This is a perfect science that proved difficult to reach, even for the states who are well-versed in performing hangings. It's supposed to break the prisoner's neck on the drop, but that really didn't happen very often. Body weight and a lot of other factors come into play. There were times that the force of the drop was so big that the convicted's head would become decapitated, which turned an afternoon of closure into a horror movie. Other times, the drop just wasn't great enough, which left the person to suffer for several minutes desperately trying to gurgle and flail. When a hanging is done by one person, I can tell you that it's damn near impossible to break your own neck. The poor souls who have done this likely didn't recognize that they were condemning themselves to a slow and painful death by suffocation, but a lot more happens along the way. This is really going to get a little dark here. Upon stepping off of the stool or chair, you'll immediately feel an eruption of acid attempt to pool and flow up your esophagus. Your blood vessels in your throat and neck are slowly being severed by the rope. Your immediate instinct will be to claw at the binding, which is absolutely futile. There's nothing you can do at this point, aside from hope that the rope will break, unless the stool is still in close enough range to step back on it, but this is a lot more difficult to do than most think. The taste of rusty pennies will flow into your mouth, you are bleeding from your throat, and some droplets will likely regurgitate past the rope. An intense pressure will pound in your head. It's like hot helium's filling all of the spaces and pressing against your brain and skull. You'll wonder if it's about to explode all over the trees. Deep panic will overtake every single thought. Not only can't you breathe, but you're burning alive from the inside out. Your chest will grow heavy like it's made of pure lead. The hot pressure in your head will extend below your neck, into your shoulders and chest. 
you'll wildly swing your legs instinctively, which will only cause more tearing in your throat. Your tongue's beginning to fill with hot helium as well. Every ounce of you from the belly button up is pulsating with disgusting agony. You'll ache to feel cool water trickle down your throat one last time. You'll wish to extinguish the smoldering fire that's only intensifying with each passing moment. This can go on for up to four minutes. Depending on whether the rope's completely cutting off oxygen or just mostly, you can remain in this state for way too long. If the obstruction's complete, you might lose consciousness in two to three minutes. There have been at least some accidental deaths in the Okagahara Forest. Unfortunately, nobody will ever know the difference. There's been a lot of suffering in that forest. There's been a lot of fear, desperation, regret, and physical agony in that forest. There have been many ends to many stories in that forest, which is really fucking tragic no matter which way you look at it. But believe it or not, the Sea of Trees is not the place that has the highest known suicides committed. That title actually belongs to a bridge in China that has had over 2,000 people jump to their deaths between 1968 and 2006. This is followed closely by the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, California. There's a really sad but good documentary called The Bridge. It's about the Golden Gate Bridge's dark history and some of the stories of the people who have jumped. I watched it years ago, and it's something I've never been able to shake. It's haunting, to say the least. This bridge is an average of 220 feet or 67 meters high. Of course, this is contingent of the water level of the San Francisco Bay, which lies beneath. Despite its height, people have survived their jump. Of course, this is followed by a long hospital stay and road to recovery, both physically and mentally. Every single person who's been rescued from the bay after jumping has said that they regretted it the moment that they stepped off of the bridge. Falling into water from such a height feels like falling into concrete. You still face deceleration or sudden stop to moving. That deceleration hurts. You'll weigh more upon impact due to gravitational force. It will be like an explosion absorbing throughout your entire body. Your actual cells can rupture or just straight up die. Even if the jump does ultimately claim your life, there's a decent chance that it will not happen on impact. Because you'll be severely maimed, it will be impossible to swim or save yourself. Your bones can effortlessly shatter. If you land feet first, your feet, legs, and pelvis are most likely to fracture. This can cause a profound electrical shooting pain that's felt from your belly button down. Your blood vessels, organs, and arteries can rupture. This will begin catastrophic internal bleeding. It will also cause extraordinary inflammation internally that will cause pressure and deep hellacious pulsating. This will leave you in a horrific state of sensation and suffering as you plummet near the water's bottom. It will be a race between internal bleeding and drowning, but without rescue, one will beat the other, and you'll become possibly forever part of the underwater world. There have been many jumpers who have never been found. The tricky currents that often change on a dime can send your remains on a trek miles and miles away from the bridge. It's possible to even be pulled out into the ocean, where it will become even more futile to find you. Additionally, the water of the bay stays at a temperature between 53 and 60 degrees Fahrenheit, or 12 and 16 degrees Celsius. This can lock up your muscles and induce hypothermia. When you add that to internal injury and broken bones, it's amazing that anyone's ever rescued from their fate. Cold water can accelerate drowning by making movement near impossible. Also, the shock of first hitting the hard as cement freezing water can induce a gasp where you inhale water right out of the gate. 
I imagine that the 1,600 people who have taken their last steps off the Golden Gate Bridge didn't realize the pain that awaited them. I suppose some were not occupied with the thought of physical pain in the first place. They may have been too haunted by their emotional pain to even consider the other side. I really hate to say it, but so many of the souls who drowned to death had no choice but to become well acquainted with the horrors of hitting that frigid water hard. All right, let's head back to Japan, which has a very long history with ritual suicides. Seppuku is an absolutely gruesome type of honor suicide. It was practiced over several spans of history and by several different groups of people. This was not a quick or easy way to die by any means. This is basically suicide by disembowelment. Though it was practiced long before by samurai, the most well-known seppuku deaths transpired during World War II. It was embedded in Japanese soldiers' minds that losing battle was about as shameful of an act as it could get. They were taught that if they run away from battle, surrender, or just lose, killing themselves was the only way to restore any honor to their lives and families. These men would first stab themselves in the lower gut with a short sword. The wound was then sliced to make it wider. The sword was shoved inside of the wound again and turned upwards, where it was sure to kill by at least nicking vital organs. Can you even imagine carrying that out on yourself? I mean, that first stab wound would just shock your insides with blade fire, but you're not even close to being done. You still have to pull the blade out and make more cuts that extend below your skin layers. This would literally feel as though you are spontaneously combusting. Stab wounds and cuts generate a lot of heat. Plus, despite the sword being short, it's still plenty long to cut into your bowels. And the thing about your bowels is they are long and kind of light. They'll adhere to the blade as you pull it out. So you're disemboweling yourself right away, but you have to find a way to keep going. As your intestines are basically filleted and pulled out of you, it will feel strange in an awful way. Imagine that your insides are made of long, thick zippers. When those zippers rip open, they release a flood of acid. It will literally feel like your longest zipper is being ripped open and out of you over and over again. Meanwhile, the acid that's flooding from the wound is now eating up your surrounding tissue in a frenzy. How in the hell are you supposed to keep cutting after something like that? Yet, soldiers did. They stayed loyal to this ritual. Sometimes soldiers would simply stab and twist. The thing is, you have your rib cage, which acts as a protective barrier for your heart and lungs. It's no easy task to actually pierce your heart. In all likelihood, they simply ended up rupturing their liver or kidneys but left their heart untouched. They might have popped their aorta artery, but none of these things will render an instant death. Most probably took anywhere from 4 to 12 minutes to finally die. That's 4 to 12 minutes too long. There's always a chance that vital organs can be missed completely, and it could end up taking over 20 minutes to die. Speaking of self-induced suffering, let me tell you about another ritual suicide that is even worse if you can believe it. Witnessing this ritual known as self-immolation is one of few things that can cause your future nightmares to have a smell. This is a form of protest that dates back hundreds or maybe even thousands of years. It has a vivid history in India, but has been used by Buddhist monks and nuns in Tibet quite prolifically. In modern history, it's been practiced all over the world, especially in areas with a lot of unrest. There have even been incidents in the United States. It's safe to call it a universal form of protest. This act involves dousing oneself with an accelerant and lighting a match. 
It's typically done in areas where there's a lot of foot traffic because the entire point is to call attention to an issue with extreme means. I'm not sure if you've ever had the displeasure of smelling a human burn alive, but it's conflicting. At first, it smells a little bit like an exotic barbecue. If you were to be out of view of this horror, you might even find yourself with a little tummy rumble. But within seconds, the smell transforms into something else entirely. The hint of sweet sausage lingers, but burnt hair, melted fats, metals, and rot all melds together to create a symphony of nasty. If you've ever driven past a slaughterhouse or pet food factory, imagine that, but it's on fire with all of the people inside. But watching this unfold is just as bad, if not worse. The animalistic screams are slightly distorted by the fire. It almost creates a small boundary that muffles and makes the sound feel like it's glass shattering, yet blocks away at the same time. All you can do is watch helplessly as the poor soul runs and flails wildly, their melting agony apparent in their expression. In the States, in recent years, there have been several cases of people performing self-immolation. The sad truth is, it often does not affect change. These cases are typically dismissed or just go unnoticed. Our nation can be one of the judgiest. We're quick to dismiss people who do radical things. We immediately jump to the conclusion that they were mentally unwell. One of these cases involved David Buckle, a well-known gay rights lawyer and environmental activist. On April 14th, 2018, he set out to Prospect Park in Brooklyn at around 6 a.m. This area was already teeming with people. Just beforehand, he emailed a suicide letter to several news outlets. In it, he detailed his fight against fossil fuel. It read, Most humans on the planet now breathe air made unhealthy by fossil fuels, and many die early deaths as a result. My early death by fossil fuel reflects what we are doing to ourselves. He left his lanyard next to a cart labeled for the police. This held his identification, his business card, suicide letter, as well as a second letter apologizing for the mess. That letter read, I am David Buckle, and I just killed myself by fire to protest suicide. I apologize to you for the mess. He was basically saying that he believes we are killing ourselves by refusing to acknowledge our use of fossil fuels that are tainting our air. He also created a small circle around himself made of soil. He doused himself in fuel and then sadly lit himself up. This act appeared to be premeditated. The circle of soil prevented the fire from spreading. This ensured that any bystanders would remain safe. David was survived by his partner of 34 years and family who were left completely in the dark about his impending death. In the days and weeks that followed his protest, countless news outlets and journalists penned pieces that seemed to imply that he was likely unwell. They went on a goose hunt to look for signs that he was suffering from a mental break. People refused to accept the fact that this could actually be black and white. David was trying to galvanize the masses in hopes that they'd be driven to change. I personally wish he had chosen another way. I think continuing on in life would have likely done more for the issue than his suicide did. But how was he to know that? He was obviously fed up with the way we were living for so long. He tried many different things to bring the issues to the forefront, but nobody was listening. He decided to commit one last radical act. I don't believe that his actions were a result of mental illness. Sadly, once a person's given that label, society often turns away from them and the real message gets completely lost in translation. I mean, why the hell is that? 
is society basically saying that if someone is mentally unwell, that their voice doesn't matter because I'm personally sick to hell of that? That's why self-immolation and many other acts of protest often falls on deaf ears in America. Self-immolation is a huge sacrifice. It's one of the worst ways a human can face death. Right away, the agony of burning is maddening. If you've ever endured a pizza oven burn or just nasty burn in general, I know that you remember the moment that it occurred. You violently pulled away from the heat source. You instinctively grabbed your wound only to be met with intensifying pain. The searing just continues to smolder. That is a very minuscule percentage of what you would feel while burning alive. Immediately, your epidermis or outer layer of skin will shrivel as heat pulls out all moisture. Soon, it will split and hiss oozing bodily fluids. That splitting will continue right down through all layers of skin until it's deep into your tissue just below. Your capillaries, the smallest and most plentiful of your blood vessels, will constrict and leak fluid, which will cause intense pulsating due to inflammation. Your bigger vessels will slowly begin to shrivel up and harden as they too lose moisture. Body fat will begin to melt, which acts as a fuel source in itself. Your eyelids will slough off after growing tacky and soon will just completely dissolve. This leaves your eye globes susceptible to burning. They will eventually melt like a glob of frozen butter, and hopefully you'll be dead before this happens. Typically, by the time the raging fire burns all the way down to your muscle, you will finally be dead. This can come in the form of shock, carbon monoxide poisoning, hypoxia, hyperthermia, or thermal decomposition. Because yes, fire can ravage the body in a way that forces it to begin actively decaying. And the pain is some of the worst pain possible. You can be consciously aware of this pure hell for anywhere from two to five minutes. Let's all hope that we do not meet this type of end. The possibility of suicide was born on the same day that the very first humans were born. Possibly even before. There are animals that end their own lives, though I doubt it's a conscious act. It's often done by self-destructive behavior. The methods of suicide are vast. I am often asked what a quick and painless death would be. I'm not sure if it's due to suicide ideation or simple curiosity. Either way, I don't have a problem answering. And that's because the truth is inconvenient. Sure. There are deaths that are easier than others. Natural disease can be peaceful. Loss of life support is 100% pain-free if the person's already in a coma. Spinning G-force might even be a little bit of a thrill right before it takes you out. But as far as suicides go, there really is no such thing. We are definitely not indestructible, but we are sturdy machines with a pretty good warranty. It's not easy to snuff out our life. There are consequences to attempting suicide that include living through it, feeling it, putting ourselves in a state of constant suffering for the remainder of our life. Overdosing on pills is a death that people assume is relatively painless. People are very dismayed to learn that it's actually an incredibly miserable end. Your esophagus will burn alive, or at least it will feel like it. You'll begin retching and violently vomiting. Your stomach will feel like it's burning jumble holes through it, and it might be. If those pills happen to be over-the-counter pain medicines like acetaminophen, you won't die for days or even weeks, and it will be insufferable. Certain pills will simply cause acute liver and kidney failure. When it happens even acutely, it can take weeks, and it's a terrible experience. If it's ibuprofen or any other medicine in that drug class, death typically comes from internal bleeding. Ibuprofen will slowly erode your esophagus and stomach lining. It can even cause your stomach to rupture, which will likely trigger an awful and painful infection in your gut called peritonitis. Take it from me. I did this by accident. 
I took ibuprofen daily for pain, and it literally ate hundreds of holes in my stomach that began to bleed. I lost a lot of blood, ended up landed in the hospital, and it hurt like a son of a bitch. I'm not naive. I'm aware of the fact that life can come along with a very unfair hand of cards. I've felt that in my own life. To be transparent, I have had times in my life where I wished to die. But I'm also being transparent and genuine when I say that I'm grateful that it never took. My life did come together for me, but it happened late. Sometimes it goes that way. I also actually did die back in 2011 to heat stroke and I came back. I've had a few close calls since, and it has changed my personal perspective on living for the better. The world, honestly, can be very ugly, and society spends a lot of energy on dismissing people and their pain or invalidating it. So I'm not going to preach to you that it's going to get better. All I'm going to say is that any pain that you're experiencing is very real. It's valid, and it's fucking unfair but I really hope that you are able to find those moments that make you feel like living it is all worthwhile. I will be including the National Suicide Hotline, as well as hotlines that I can find for other countries in my description, just in case. I really hope that you enjoyed taking this heavy journey into death with me. This is only part one. I will be covering suicides again in the near future. I also wanted to remind all of you that I am completely 100% up for requests. Just like my other content, I'm here for you. I'm here to create the content that you've always wanted but could never find. Feel free to reach out to me on Instagram or email with any requests or comments. We shall meet again at the same time next week, loves. Until then.